Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Primal Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, and anti-aging supplement, available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, Mark Sisson. Hey everyone, Mark Sisson here. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint and Primal Endurance Podcast Studios in beautiful Malibu, where every day is an awesome day. Today's guest, I'm really excited about talking with because this guy has done a lot of stuff. He's um, he's quite the entrepreneur. He's quite the athlete. I'd heard about him. The legend preceded my meeting him. He and I met up in a Starbucks in Malibu of all places, and uh, we kind of hit it off. Um, we've stayed in touch since then. Saw each other, I don't know, about a month ago at an event and said, let's get together and do a podcast. So we're going to do it today. Joe DeSena, the founder and CEO of Spartan Race, the world's leading obstacle racing company. Joe has demonstrated his entrepreneurial drive since his pre-teens, from selling fireworks at age eight, ooh, naughty, naughty, to building a multi-million dollar pool business in college, to creating a Wall Street trading firm, and now the world's fastest growing sports movement. Throughout his lifetime, Joe has competed in any extreme sports adventure he could find, testing his mental and physical endurance against nature. 50 ultra events overall and 14 Ironman events in one year alone. Get a life, pal. He turned his interest in endurance racing into a passion, and now with more than 200 events in 30-plus countries planned for 2017, Spartan Race has more than 1 million global participants offering open heats for all fitness levels and ages, as well as competitive and elite heats. Joe's message of inspiration and personal transformation, combined with his status as a two-time New York Times best-selling author of Spartan Up and Spartan Fit, make him a popular keynote speaker and public figure. Welcome, Joe. Boy, with that introduction, I could just hang up now. I, you, my head has exploded. I sound... Um... I think a we said larger. all there needs to be said. I mean, I don't know <laughs> I'm a lot larger than life. Listen, you're a lot cooler than I am, but you made uh, me sound good. So let's talk today about uh, a number of things. Obviously, I'm interested in the entrepreneurial uh, aspect of what you do. But I'm also, you know, this this um, you, you're known, I suppose, most now for the Spartan race, uh, this crazy obstacle event that, hey, I got to tell you, it's it sort of seems obvious to me now that this should have been around. 30 years ago, right? And 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 before Ironman, before any of these other things, why wasn't there obstacle racing? It's just, it's such the coolest sort of event. Don't you agree? Yeah, you know, I, I am, and I really believe this when I say it, I, I it has been around forever, right? It's probably, it's probably the oldest sport um, because we, as human beings, and you, you would appreciate this, we ran, we jumped, we crawled, we climbed. Um, the obstacles just are part of the environment. Uh, whether we were chasing deer or I'm sure uh, playing in some kind of games back in the ancient world. So, I, you know, just the fact that it's it's a little more organized and you got to purchase a ticket uh, doesn't mean that, you know, it hasn't been around forever. But to your point, um, it, it's funny. I've been putting on races for a long time, 17 years now. And for the first 10 years, 
I had a buddy, uh, this guy uh, that I used to go running with, Heath uh, Goslin. And while we were out running, we would do crazy things for training. We'd carry dumbbells up a mountain. I can't tell you how many times he said to me, hey, Joe, because I was putting on races. You got to do a military-inspired obstacle race. And um, it just didn't seem legitimate to me when he would say it. It sounded a little hokey. I couldn't wrap my head around it. And, and because Ironman and triathlon seem legit, running seemed legit, right? But this, what he was describing just sounded wacky. Now, what's funny about that, and you'll appreciate this, is go back to the 70s, right? When my mother first introduced me like to the New York Marathon or, or even the Transcendence uh, Run, which wasn't called that back then. It was 33,000 miles around a one-mile loop in Queens. Those didn't seem legitimate either, right, in the early days, right? Ironman was for a bunch of lunatics mm-hmm. in, in the late 70s. And so, um, so I think I, it's funny. Our minds have this perception of what's normal and what isn't, what isn't normal and what's legit and what isn't legit. And just because now there's a million people a year uh, participate in our events and we've got like we're in 30 countries it, and we're making an Olympic bid, it just seems more legitimate. But I, I think answering your question, it's been around a long time, but maybe just not in this format and not with the name Spartan. Does that make sense? No, it makes total sense. I mean, you're right. I mean, it's, it's as primal a sport as you can get, I suspect. Um, it also, uh, you know, having been a member of the Olympic movement for a while, it lends itself to that sort of competition worldwide. Um, I used to tell people that had I been born 30 years later, parkour would have been my sport, uh, because I had a gymnastic background before I was a runner. Uh, and then, you know, I had my DNA tested a couple of years ago and it turns out I'm not really uh, a full on endurance athlete. I'm like 50 you know, 55% endurance athlete and 45% strength athlete. So I had that almost that perfect combination. It's like, okay, um, parkour, uh, was, it was just kind of a fun little finesse free form expression, but obstacle racing, that's like, I could really get behind that. And you're right. I mean, as a kid, um, in growing up in Maine and part-time in Florida, I thought I was Tarzan and I literally did. And so I would go out in the backyard and I would be climbing trees and swinging, from one branch on one tree to another, uh, you know, and jumping over stuff and crawling under stuff and through culverts and, and everything. So it's, it is like one of the most natural, um, sports activities somebody could, could come up with. And yet it took you to make it this wildly successful organized event that, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, you turn people away from your events now, right? Yeah. We're, we're, uh, in order to give a great user experience, we just we're selling them out and, and we're not able to uh, keep up with the demand. But and that's a I'm not upset about that. We're, yeah. we're you know, it makes the achievement that much greater for people that finish it. And then they brag about it. It, it helps change lives. But um, yeah. And by the way, when we started, um, this was a complete. Am I allowed to curse on this podcast? Yeah, yeah, sure. this, it was a this was a complete shit show. Like I, I, um, I was losing so much money. It was. Like my eyes were bleeding, um, as you know, anybody out there listening that starts a business knows. But but the scale of this thing, because and, and because I didn't know what I was doing. Um, typically, when you start a brand like this, I guess you're supposed to work outside of a ring, and you're probably doing it with your restaurants. But like you start in one location, and then you get a little bigger, go a little further out of the ring, a little further out, you build out from that center core location. We we may I made the mistake of uh, you know Vermont Trying to scale it hugely right yeah Vermont's the first location the UK Slovakia you would <laughs> never you would yeah. never do that and and um, 
And so, you know, it cost me dearly, but, but, but because we were out over our skis, we were now the largest, I call, I don't even say obstacle raid, the largest endurance running event in the world. Um, there's, there, there's, there's nobody bigger and I don't, that's not bragging. That's just, um, the reason I'm saying it that way is because it's legit, right? People out there that are listening and saying, gee, what is this thing? It's legitimate enough to be in 30 countries, 200 events. It, it's, it's big. And so if you've been living under a rock, you wouldn't know about it. Otherwise, you should be out there doing it because it's getting people healthy. Yeah. And you know what I've noticed also is that there are a lot of people who, you know, you've done your you, you did your 10K and you worked your way up to the marathon. Then you did a couple of marathons and you kind of, you know, if you're a type A um, or if you're on Maslow's hierarchy of needs and you're shooting for wicked self-actualization, you say, OK, uh, I'll do a triathlon or ultra next. You do a couple of those and you go, OK, what's next? And I think. You came along at just the right time when there were enough people who, who had done uh, the triathlons and the and the distance running events and maybe the century rides who were out there literally saying, "What's next? What's the next challenge? What can I do that that um, well in the early days that not many people have done? Now a lot of them have done it, but you know what's that? What's that next life challenge? What's that next notch I could put on my belt? And um, and I, I think you know kudos to you for having identified that. Um, I want to just mention a couple of uh, one-liners that I got from some friends who know you. Uh, Joe's uh, one of his one of his trademark lines is "Get shit done." Tell me what that means to you. Yeah, you know, I, I've got a I've got a very successful friend on Wall Street that really changed my life um, in, a, in a good way, and and he's much more reserved. Like if we were sitting down and eating dinner, the three of us, me, you, and him. He's probably the slowest eater. He's he he he's really playing a, a long game of chess in life, and and he'll take the other side of what you just said. And he's you know slow down, think about it. you don't you don't need to be just pushing and getting stuff done. And I'm I'm the complete opposite. I just like to get shit done, move the merchandise out. You know, if you were a merchant, and um, life is really short, and I just I I don't know. I guess I measure myself based on the amount of stuff I get done on a daily basis because sitting around, even as a young kid, sitting around watching TV and kind of just loafing um, and not being productive really just gets under my skin and drives me crazy. And so I don't do well um, in in any of the businesses I've owned being around um, people that are just not movers and shakers. I, I get physically sick. My stomach starts to like get acidic. Mm. I have to be moving. I want to be around high performers that are getting stuff done that are moving the ball forward. Um, I don't know if it's good or bad to the point, you know, I said about my friend on wall street, who's the complete opposite and who has done much better than I have done financially. But, um, but that's just me. I like to get shy. And you seem to be that kind of guy too. I mean, Uh, to a fault. I mean, I, I sometimes, um, think I should have dinner with your Wall Street friend and figure out how, how, how he's because you know your, your assumption about most Wall Street guys is they're the biggest swing and you know what's in the in the you know in the world and uh, uh, and they're the they're the total type A's and they're the ones that are like bring it on bring it on bring it on um, so it's it's kind of interesting to hear that uh, a very successful Wall Street guy sort of you know has a uh, has a more patient shall we say uh, attitude about life and and getting stuff done. Yeah, he and, he and his brother are Indian, and um, and they both took the long game, and they just uh, they don't rush into anything, and they have both ki- killed it. Um, if, if if you're measuring them uh, uh, financially, or or even um, 
Yeah, they're just they're just a lot slower, a lot more patient. Um, but by the way, I couldn't live that way, and neither could you. Yeah, so yeah, no, matter. it's like you know, it's a tortoise and hare kind of thing. I mean, each yeah. one has its own uh, way of getting to the finish line. Um, yeah. So one of the um, bullet points in the marketing, I think, of your um, racing stuff is uh, conquer your greatest obstacle, your will. So you're suggesting that your will to do something is your single greatest obstacle. Elaborate, please. No doubt about it. I mean, you and I were talking for a few minutes before the podcast, and you were you were telling me you were a mile offshore checking out whales. Um, talk about an incredible day on this planet. But that required you to make a commitment, jump on the paddleboard, learn how to paddleboard, right? And then paddle um, with uh, no concern or regard for your life. I, would, I wouldn't say no concern. <laughs> I was quite concerned. A mile offshore. And, and so the thing that stops us from doing anything outside of our comfort zone um, is our will, is our, is our ability to take that first step, you know, the first step in the thousand mile journey. And, and when I, I talk to tens of thousands of people on an annual basis because of the Spartan race and the number one question I get, Joe, how do you, how do you get motivated, right? How do you take that first step? How do you, what happens if you bite off more than you can chew? So this is, this is not just in our conversation. This is everybody's uh, tape they're playing in their head. And um, it's the reason people don't get stuff done, get ahead, um, push through in their relationship in a positive, like it's always just the will you, you quit. Yeah. And, I mean, uh, I was thinking about that the other day in my own life, because um, every once in a while I'll get uh, up to a point where I feel like I'm overwhelmed with all the stuff that I've taken on. And then I catch myself and I say, Oh, don't start thinking small. You got to think big. You know um, it's, it's only the big thinkers that, that make it. And I suspect that, you know, that's a form of willpower, that ability to, to harness or change your thinking, I should say, not just harness you, you literally uh, it's not like you, like you have it or don't have it. I think it's just changing your thinking, right? It's just yeah, yeah. no, no, no doubt about it. I, mean, I, I created a chart that shows um, I, I, I call it normal, right? Let's look at what normal is because people, everybody has nor they define normal uh, in their own lives, and everybody stays within that bubble of normal, normalcy. And normal three hundred, five hundred years ago is different than normal today, and, and normal today is different than just your parents' normal. And and so certainly in the first world. Um, we are, we have it pretty easy. Most of us are not paddling a mile offshore and hanging out with whales. And, and, um, and we don't like to get outside of that bubble of normal because it feels uncomfortable, but, but you, your will, right. Your desire, the motivation, that ability to get outside your comfort zone is what gets us out. Of, and that's where all the magic happens, right? That's where, those are the great stories. Those are the the things that we talk about uh, at the end of our life—it's not the stuff in the middle, mm -hmm. uh, sitting on the couch watching TV. So, I, I would argue um, this word "will," this concept of of being able to push outside your—it's probably the most—it's it, the most important attribute that we have or, or don't have. And the good news is, it's easy to take a step over that. There have been studies done on this. Uh, they've studied the brain. And, and, you know, where somebody's laying in an MRI machine and they put snakes a few inches from your face while you're laying and they study the brain waves and people that are just willing to suck it up and not push the button that, that, that takes the snake away from their face um, are just a, a lot more successful. And like both of us have that fear, the person that pushes the snake away and the person that keeps the snake uh, close, both 
but one of them has the will to say, you know what, I'm just going to deal with it, right? Right. And 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 you just dealt with going. I'm sorry to keep using this story, right? But but you just dealt with the fact that you were a mile offshore on your paddleboard, um, and Branson just dealt with the fact that he was up in a hot air balloon going. You just deal with it, right? We all, he's fearful of it. I'd be you'd be fearful, but you just deal with it, right? But then. There's also that aspect of taking responsibility for having put yourself in that position. Like sometimes there's an appropriate amount of of uh, envelope pushing, if you will, and sometimes it's it's inappropriate. And well, one of the, it, yeah, one yeah. of the things that that I have to try and resolve in my own mind is, you know, where where are the limitations for me? Uh, my example would be, um, you know, I've over the years I've tried to do things that are fun. Uh, I've, I've selected events and and ways of moving that I consider fun snowboarding um uh, paddleboarding uh you know uh playing games um w- you know whatever the whatever the um particular modality is um but I don't want to I don't want to uh do anything that I that I don't consider fun on the other hand um like friends of mine who would do kite surfing I thought well I should try kite surfing but then I know enough of them that have yanked their shoulders out that I go, well, you know, uh, on balance is the amount of fun I'm going to have uh, doing that uh, outweighed by the potential risk for injury. And I find myself getting going down that little bit of a rat hole there. So, well, you know, when I like when I go offshore on my board, I'm very confident in my paddling abilities. I'm very confident in my, uh, you know, so it's not it's not pushing the envelope that much. I just wonder, you know, what what is it? For some people, is there some device that edits us so much that we never even get back past our comfort zone? And for other people, you know, who ch- just choose to free climb a thousand foot uh, face and think nothing of it, what you know, what's the difference in the in the wiring there? Yeah, so um, I think about this a lot, by the way. And um, here, here's the way I think about it: Ed Vister's right, uh, first American to yep. climb. Um, all, all the largest peaks in the world, I think without oxygen based, his thing was getting up to the top of the mountain is optional. Getting down is mandatory. Yep. So, but not a lot of us can do that. And so I've been wrestling for 20 years with this idea of pivoting, which is what you're talking about. When do you pivot? And I think, I believe it's aligned very clearly with our values uh, and beliefs, our true North. If you want to be the greatest paddleboarder that ever lived, right, um, you might go for it. You might go that extra half mile, whatever, because you're, you're setting records, you're pushing limits. You want to be the greatest mountain climber, you might take that extra little chance uh, at the top of the mountain that, you, that somebody else wouldn't. If you want to be a family man, if that's your true north, and you've got three kids at home, well, you're probably turning around. Because that's it, it right? You, you're not setting records on the mountain. You're, you were just trying to get up, but 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 the environment told you that it's getting a little too dangerous. So I really, I think that decision is made to pivot or not um, based on what you, what you're supposed to be. What would you be doing in life if if you had all the money in the world? Like, what do you want written on your tombstone? I want to be the greatest paddleboard that ever lived. I want to be the guy that went four more miles offshore. And well, then you're going for it. Does, does that make sense? Oh, totally. Yeah. And, and, you know, you're having said that it's still more important to me to be a good dad, uh, you know, and, and a good, uh, person and a good employer and, and sort of those things rather than setting, uh, 
world records in athletic events. Now, there was a time in my life when a record in an athletic event would have been the highest priority. Uh, so I think over over the years, you also, you know, you develop uh, a different mindset. You, you know, you pivot in your uh, in in your goals. You pivot in uh, your passions and your purpose and what interests you. Um, sure. Yeah. Cool. Sure. So let me ask you this. Do you expect a lot from other people? Uh, too much. And I'm changing as I as we get older here. But in the early days, I expected everybody to have my will, my work ethic, and 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 work like me. And I guess I still depend. I'm sure you do too in your business. And at the end of the day, um, if you can get rid of those expectations, you'd be a lot happier. I'd be a lot happier, right? Because um, you, when you've got really high expectations and low tolerance for um, oh, it's just a not- recipe for frustration all the time. All, all the time. And so, um, you know, what I did say to my team in our current company was, you know, maybe I just want to be around high performers, as, as I'm sure you want to be. It's really fun when you're watching a movie. You watch this this TV show, Billions. Oh, you seen this? I love it. It's my favorite show on TV. Fan, yeah. Fantastic. And by the way, it's well written in the sense that I worked there for 12 years. Yeah. The guy that the movie is based he was our customer. Yeah. Um, it's it's very well written and it's very um, accurate. Yep. Um, and I um, I, I you know I, I love the fact that he's got these high performers around him, right? He's got a coach. Yeah. He has a coach to keep he has a them coach. in mind. Yeah. yeah, and I love that. And so my latest idea is I just want to be around those kind of people. But you got to pay like that. For sure. Yeah. Um, but and and that brings up that other point that he has a coach uh, to, to help keep his people, his high-performing people, high-performing, and he weeds them out. Yeah, so what are you doing to keep your high-performers around? You got a coach? Uh, so I'm, I've sort of. I've got a coaching company. Uh, you know, the, the Prima Health Coach is our, is our latest thing. Here's the unabashed uh, pitch for what we do. But um, we've got some high-level coaches that we brought on to coach the coaches, um, and so I'm learning from them. Um, I work uh, on and off with a guy named George Pransky, who is uh, the keeper of a of a concept called the Three Principles, which is about changing your way of thinking. So that's that's the closest to a coach that I have. But he's been very very helpful. And over the years, I've had other um, people that were not, you know, you you wouldn't call them therapists as much as you call them coaches. But that's also the character in Billions. Is she's sort of a therapist who's more of a coach, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. No doubt about it. Yeah, I am. Um... But I mean, we do just to your point. Um, we have, uh, you know, sort of an internalized, you probably, you probably sh- shouldn't say this as an employer, you might get in trouble, but, you know, we have a rule, no assholes and superstars only. And, um, and, and, I'm, and I'm quite clear about that. I mean, I need people to get along with everybody, but I want superstars. I want people who are willing to work and, and willing to, you know, invest in the lifestyle, uh, to, be, to be, you know, personally invested in eating well and living well so that they can perform well. And I suspect the same of you. No, I, I, I love that. And, and when you get bigger, it becomes, it becomes harder, but, um, but I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to run an organization like that every day. And, uh, what is amazing, and I'm sure you have the same thing. What's amazing about the Spartan brand is it does attract amazing folks that are willing to work uh, and do whatever it takes to get the job done because they just want to be around this brand and lifestyle. And you probably have that same thing. Yeah, but I mean, in your case, I I know like from a practical matter, you guys go into a, a city or a town 
or an outlying s- suburban area and you build a course over a very short period of time. I mean, it's a massive construction project. Tell me about that. Anybody who's done a, a kitchen renovation listening to this um, and been frustrated, imagine doing 50 kitchen renovations at once on the side of a mountain while it's raining because that's what, that's what we do. But I have to say, our production team is incredible. They're extremely organized, extremely tight. I mean, to put on 200 events around the world, uh, any given weekend could be five events going on. You, you got to hand it to that team. And we have very little frustration in that area. The hardest um, thing for us, believe it or not, and it's probably because I'm too old and just not proficient at it, is the whole digital marketing piece. It's... Um, I guess it brings in a different level of talent, different age group is handling that. And you know what I mean? I feel really comfortable on construction because I grew up around it. But um, but this whole digital world is is uh, difficult for me. Oh, dude, when you you know, when you have to enlist your 10 year old to hook up your your, uh, you know, your your sono set or sync up your your uh, personal electronic devices, you know, you're in trouble, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, the same thing. We're, you know, we're, we've just hired a bunch of uh, new digital marketing people. And I, I have to admit that even though I've been in the world and building a blog over the last 10 years, I've kind of stuck with a blog and the rest of the digital social media space has kind of passed me by. And all of a sudden I'm realizing I have to catch up if I want to survive uh, in this world. So uh had to, had to go back to the to, to the drawing board and hire people who know that stuff. And you're right. It, it is a different, in, in some regards, it's a different type of person than the, than the person who's the DIY minimalist, you know, make your own bone broth, cook your own meals, sleep in a tent, uh, two miles off the, off the main drag kind of person that I originally hired. Right. Sure. Sure. So, um, okay. Uh, let's see. Embrace your greatest friend discipline. So we talked about willpower. Um, how is discipline different from willpower? Yeah, so discipline is, is this ability to say, look, it's non-negotiable. I'm working out every morning. It's non-negotiable. Uh, I'm going to bed early. It's non-negotiable. I'm going to drink a little less. Or, you know, if it's business, I'm, I'm going to every day, I'm going to make my list of uh, objectives for the day. Whatever it is, it, it's that people that lack that ability to stay disciplined and on point uh, probably have a tougher time, most likely have a tougher time achieving their goals. And, um, you know, I interviewed this woman. She's fantastic. She's absolutely crushed it out in Silicon Valley, was a partner at Andreessen Horowitz. And, and I had the fortune of going to her house and doing a podcast with her. And I love this term. She, you know, she said, it's just non-negotiable. Every morning I wake up, doesn't matter where I am in the world, doesn't matter what time I'm working out. Cause that stuff, I owe that to myself. And, um, you could apply that to any, any part of your life. But if you want to be successful in an area, you want to be the greatest paddleboarder or own the greatest digital agency, whatever it is, you're the greatest mom, it requires discipline. And um, I think if we look at failures, why people, it's a lack of discipline. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the converse of that, as you say, you look at the failures of, uh, of businesses. And by the way, um, speaking of failures, that was one of my failures. I had an idea for a magazine 30 years ago called Failure Magazine. And all it would do would be to look at failed businesses, failed marriages, whatever, and and basically go in and deconstruct what happened and, and break it down. I still, to this day, think it was a brilliant idea. 
It's a but, brilliant it's a brilliant idea, but I don't know if I'd read it, right? Because I'm an optimist. Yeah. Also, I've, I was trying to figure out who I'd get as an advertiser. But uh Yeah, good point. You know, but but anyway, I just I I, I thought it was a, a great idea. Um but it's the uh you say it's, it, you know, businesses fail because of of a lack of discipline. And um and I think that's right. I think that that uh you know, you people who who succeed I mean, perseverance is a word I use a lot. Like you might have just an okay idea, but if you persevere, uh, if you if you survive and learn from whatever little mistakes don't kill you, eventually it's quite likely you become successful because perseverance is such an important sticking to it throughout throughout thick and thin. I mean, the number of people I know who have given up uh, on businesses that that other people were, found a way to to um, succeed wildly. Um, I, you know, I absolutely believe this in marriage, that people give up on marriages way too soon, that if they just persevered and and kind of did a little bit of analysis and figured out what was going on, they could come back, come out on the other side with with a, a successful, long lasting marriage. But they, they give up too easily. They say, ah, it's too painful. It, it hurts too much. I don't want to do the work. So I'm going to walk away and start over. I was really lucky. I had my first business was a swimming pool cleaning business. I had 700 customers. So in a way, I was reading the failure magazine you wanted to create every single day because I got a chance to really look in through the looking glass of these homes. I was very close to the people with my customers. I could sleep over their house. I could eat in their kitchen. They let me in their backyard. 700 people, different uh, ages, different um, backgrounds, uh, unhealthy people, healthy people, organized crime, you name it. And I got a chance to say, like Bruce Lee, I'm going to take a little bit of that. And I'm going to discard this. Mm-hmm. I got to learn, you know, the families that were successful the way I viewed them. Those were the, those were that's the way I wanted to live. So um, extremely, extremely powerful. And and as far as your your comment on quitting, um, uh, we've got a million people a year going through our system. I watch people quit every single day. And what happens? The brain gives the most logical reason at that moment when you're feeling discomfort or pain in your marriage, your, 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 your um, long distance run, your paddle board, whatever it is. And, and you actually convince yourself in a very logical manner why you should stop right now, whatever it may be. And I, I can't tell you how many tens of thousands of conversations I've had with people that said, just trust me, take the next step, follow that with the next step, and then you'll get to the finish line. You'll be much happier. Now, obviously, if you're, if, 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 you're being injured or, or somebody's cheating on you, whatever. That's a different right, situation. Right. right. But, but um, more often than not, the brain is giving you <laughs> these logical reasons that really um, two days later, when you look back, say, gee, what the hell, what the hell was I thinking? One last thought on what you said was I really learned this idea of perseverance. Uh, when I started doing these long distance endurance races, I, um, I was on a team and we did you know, an enormous amount of events around the world. And they were very long distance events. So they, let's, let's say they were six days or more. And I remember very early on learning, oh, my God, all you have to do is stay in the game. In other words, you're three days in and you're in last place. Yeah, and you fr- will win by attrition. It, I, but, but you don't know that. Right. Somebody listening right now doesn't know that. But then, But you're in last place. And then somehow three or four days later... You've been miserable for four days. You've wanted to quit because there's no point in doing it because you're in last place and you're lost. And, and you get to the finish line. We finished fourth place. Yeah. How did that happen? Because yep. everybody else quit. Yep. <laughs> no, it's exactly right. Attrition is one of the greatest contributors to other people's success. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, on Wall Street, from a financial perspective, on Wall Street, I can't, I can't tell you how many people I saw jump from firm to firm because they weren't happy with their job. They can get an extra $10,000 going somewhere else or they quit because they didn't like their boss. And literally the most unlikely employees, the most unlikely people at these firms, Credit Suisse, Goldman Sachs, you name it, that all they did was put their head down and not complain and stay put, ended up making tens of millions of dollars just through attrition. Yep. Yep. I mean, and in the endurance community, and I know you know this as well, uh, not only if you sometimes hang in there, will you pull ahead of other people who are, who are just who are feeling better than you were at the time you were feeling like crap. And so they, they got ahead, but it just finishing a race in any condition um, sets you up. It, it, it builds a certain amount of, of uh, hardness in you that prepares you for the next race. When uh, a set of circumstances presents themselves or an obstacle presents itself, or you go through a low point or a low mood. Um, and the worst thing you can do is, is, you know, only race when you feel good, right? I, I'm, sure. a, I'm, I'm a big fan of of that uh, that effect. The guys who just set the uh, or came close to running two hours for the marathon. I don't know if you followed any of that, but you know they had to go out and run five thirty five four thirty five a mile for thirteen or fourteen miles many times just to prepare themselves for how it was going to feel when they decided to do the the full on race and hold that pace for twenty six miles. Did did um, did they end up breaking the two hours or no? No, they went two hours and twenty five seconds. It was still an incredible. It was like two again two thirty five or four thirty five, four thirty six per mile for twenty six point two miles. Um, I um I I we were gonna uh, about four years ago we were gonna fund that project. We had um, this guy Hobie Cole who who's won more uh, Spartan races than anybody in history. He was our um, protege to do this. And, um, and we just never got the project off the ground. But if anybody was going to do it, this guy was going to do it. Um, sp- interesting. Wait, a Spartan racer was going to go two hours? Yeah, he was going to go sub two. You look him up, Hobie Call. He was pretty uh, – his theory was um, – he. so he would run – his training would be with a weight vest on, right? And then and then uh, when he was going to break the two-hour marathon, it was it was without the weight vest. Right. But he um, – incre- he's like a cat. This this guy um, incredibly fast, off the charts fast. You know, holds the world record in one mile lunges. I mean, he's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Got to look him up. Yeah, uh, and those are the kind of guys that um, one of the references I heard is like you train yourself, like p- put your finger in a candle in a flame and see how long you can hold it there. Can you hold exactly. it there for an hour and a half? Right? Exactly, because that's kind of what the pain those guys are going. It's really uh, it's transcendent where they where they put their brains. Um, yeah. Let's see. Other events breed sheep. Spartan race breeds wolves. What does that mean? Well, I mean, you want to be a sheep or a wolf in life, right? I don't know if you remember that movie with uh, Denzel Washington, Training Day. But yeah. there's, that, there's that great line. Yeah. And, and um, you know, a wolf's going to survive, right? A wolf's not getting um, attacked. Sure. Um, but how does it, how, you know, what's, what, are, what are the differences in the Spartan event versus, say, it's, you know, an Ironman or something like that, that make that difference. Well, it's funny. I did a lot of Ironman and uh, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but my feeling, I, I watched more top level Ironman quit on very rainy, poor conditions, or they're having a bad race. And I remember scratching my head because the races, 
and events I had come from were brutal events, right? The weather was terrible. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. And I was just blown away. This, this, this person, woman, male or female, were going to take home the title of being you know, an Iron Man or a woman that day. And they were quitting because it was raining or they were quitting because they were having a bad day or their chain broke on their bicycle. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. And so um, really, I was disappointed with the field and uh, not everybody, but, 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 but the, the people I saw uh, quitting and Spartan, this idea behind Spartan was no, the going is going to get tough. Everything that can go wrong will go wrong. The water is going to be ice cold. There's going to be rocks in your shoes and you're going to build throughout the course of this 13 miles or 26 miles, whatever distance Spartan, right? You're going to build obstacle immunity. Like, shit's going to go wrong and you're going to be able to deal with it. Right. And, and you might not be uh, super strong, but you're going to lift up a hundred pound Atlas ball and move it. You might not be super fast, but you're going to be competing against people that are running sub five minute. Mile. Like you've got a, an entire body and ethos in mind that, that you've got to pull into this race. And, um, and that turns you into a wolf. So, so, so uh, Spartan racing is a metaphor for life. Without a doubt, I, I um, unlike marathon runners and unlike um, Ironman, and I, I apologize for all you Ironmen and Iron Women out there listening. But come out and do a Spartan Beast, and you'll know exactly what we're talking about here. Yeah, um, yeah, because it's uh, it, life is about facing stuff that you haven't yet faced. Correct. Um, when you're a marathoner or or a triathlete, the worst that's going to happen is they're going to throw a hill in there. You know, you, or, you are training every day with your bike and it's got to be perfect. And you're getting graphite handlebars and you're going to take 22 seconds off your swim with these special goggles and, yeah. uh, Spartan is nothing like that. And then, Spartan. and then it's, you know, then the conditions are bad that day and the, the waves are, you know, two feet instead of a foot, uh, or there's a swarm of jellyfish or like you say, it rains. And so you're, you, you pick the wrong tires and you, you get discouraged out of the blocks going, well, I'm not going to have my race today. Because this isn't, this isn't what I prepared for. And that's ridiculous. Well, it is so ridiculous because no. life exa- is exactly that way. Life is about, well, you know, the old saying, it's, it's 10% what happens to you and 90% how you deal with it. I joke with a lot of Ironman all the time. If I was running uh, Ironman, and, and I, I know the CEO really well, I would, um, I would take everybody's seat off yeah, <laughs> before they got funny. on the bike, right? Yeah, yeah. I'd break their goggles before yeah. they get in the water. Like, yeah. So, yeah. Well, Joe, is there anything else you want to leave my audience with today? Any any pearls of wisdom beyond the the um, the gold mine that we've just given them already? Uh, a couple of things. One is I would say um, get rid of some stuff. Uh, the great samurai. I'm living in Japan. I'm talking to you from Japan right now. The great samurai used to uh, when they went to bed at night, they would close their eyes and burn all their material possessions and their even their family. Just get rid of everything they owned and loved so that when they woke up in the morning, they appreciate it more. Um, the philosophy here is, um, if you have everything, you appreciate nothing. If you have nothing, you appreciate everything. And it comes out of stoicism, uh, Buddha, you know, they've been talking about it yeah. For, yeah. Yeah, for a long time. So, so, um, get rid of some stuff, even if it's just for a day, you'll appreciate what you have. Um, number two is if any of your listeners, um, want to go to a race or, or come check out even some of our long distance events, or whatever, just shoot me an email. I'm, I'm Joe at Spartan.com. Happy to hook some people up because they're friends of yours or listeners of yours. Um, and, and that's that. I'm, uh, 
I'm accessible. Um, we're all over the world. And if they're listening to Mark, uh, they're friends of ours. Oh, I appreciate that, Joe. Um, and, and likewise, uh, appreciate our, the, the rare times that we've been together. I'm looking forward to more of those. Um, love Japan. So good choice in that regard. Uh, and uh, let's do it again sometime. You guys are awesome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us today, Joe. And my listeners, thanks for joining us here at the Primal Blueprint and Primal Endurance Podcast Studios in beautiful Malibu. See you next time. Stay primal. Hi, folks. Mark Sisson here. And I'd like to tell you about my biggest undertaking yet, the Primal Health Coach Program. My mission is to create a global network of primal health coaches to help transform the health and consciousness of our communities into ones of optimal wellness and happiness. Becoming a primal health coach empowers you to take your primal passions to the next level and embark on a career you love, inspiring others to live lives of vitality and lasting wellness. If you dream of a career in health coaching but have been held back by worries such as the investment of time and money, then I encourage you to hesitate no longer. Health coaching is the fastest growing specialty in all of coaching, and we've created an online education program that allows you to learn from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. The world needs primal health coaches to provide a blend of ancestral wellness solutions to the modern health crisis. The world needs you. Are you ready to become one of the world's most trusted, experienced, and knowledgeable health coaches? To learn more about this online certification program and to take the first step toward a career you love, visit PrimalHealthCoach.com and subscribe.